From India's largest newsroom, I'm Meenal Baghel and this is the Times of India podcast. I think one thing I wanted to get really um out there today via your, you know, your show was that I think we're talking about hijab and muslim women here and the danger here is this becoming a pro hijab and anti hijab debate which it isn't this is very much a conversation of denial of constitutionally guaranteed rights article 14 equality in front of the law article 25 you know but right to religion and article 25 i was actually before the show was reading today it's it really beautifully captures this idea it says you know uh, freedom of conscience and free uh, freedom uh, free profession practice and propagation of religion so freedom of conscience there is that danger that this becomes a hijab debate when it is a debate and a conversation about denial of fundamental rights to particular indian citizens on february the 8 karnataka high court began hearing a petition on the hijab row that's broken out in schools and colleges of coastal karnataka and chief minister basavaraj bommai announced closure of all schools and colleges in the state for the next 3 days karnataka is in tumult over the rights of female muslim students to wear the hijab to classrooms even as hundreds of hindu students have come out to protest wearing saffron shawls all through the last days principals teachers and law enforcers have remained complicit bystanders and have simply encouraged the escalation of competitive communalism my colleague deepthi sanjeev who grew up in mangalore and reports from there says in the last few years south canara or the coastal belt has transformed into a bastion of hindutva politics which has changed the texture of day to day life there i studied in an uh, all girls co- school as well as college and we had muslim studying with us that time the communal ha- hatred or the communal divide was not so deep it has what i observe it has increased over the years uh, students used to come wearing the burqa till the classroom remove them and they would be like us i mean hijab in particular was not an issue but over the years yes muslim girls are particular that the way that they wear the hijab we would celebrate all festivals wait for probably biryani from a muslim friend or they would wait to have a veg full meals during a hindu uh, event so i think that that communal divide could be keeping in mind the upcoming elections mangalore and urupi are big educational hubs but the region has been in the news in the last few years for first the attack by the far right sri ram seni on female students at a pub and now for denying access to the classrooms for hijab wearing students this is an issue that has cropped up repeatedly from 2009 onwards says deepthi if you look at undivided dakshin kannada it's not the first incident undivided dakshin kannada here means uh dakshin kannada district as well as udupi the two prominent coastal towns of karnataka the first hijab row was somewhere in 2009 uh when a student at a private college uh demanded her right for wearing the hijab 
since then off and on every year we would get to see one case being reported in some college or so in dakshin kannada district but udupi turned out to be a major uh, issue this time uh, it all started in the last week of december where about six students said that they were fighting for their right to wear the hijab what they conveyed was that uh, Uh, they have seen their seniors super seniors wearing hijab and attending classes mm-hmm. but when they were when they asked the authorities for for uh, permission they were denied the same the college uh, development committee that is headed by the bjp mla of udupi district mr ragupati but they decided to hold a meeting and they are uh, with the purpose of convincing people uh, convincing the parents and students that the college has a prescribed uniform and the students must adhere to it the people who are actually uh, victims of this uh, are generally from the lower middle uh, middle class studying in government colleges so uh, i really don't know who's going to benefit out of it but yes uh, in the long run it's going to create a clear divide in the society because this kind of hatred uh, as i was speaking to this uh, udupi girls so they were saying that the non uh, muslim students don't like them any longer they kind of there's a hatred in college which would we would probably never see earlier senior advocate and former state public prosecutor bt venkatesh says the debate on whether to allow or disallow hijabi students is a moot one any discrimination on clothing he says flies in the face of articles 14 19 1a and 25 of the constitution he also explains the deeper idea of cultural identity that goes beyond religious or secular identities the narrative that is being pushed he warns is nothing less than a war against women the narrative is not sanfranchal narrative is bindi narrative is not narrative is that uh, earrings narrative narrative is that of a cross narrative is that of a hijab all of them and who is wearing that girls understand that it's the girls who are targeted girls education that's being targeted girls are being denied education as such girls are being denied education in this country in any and every reason in the same self same gurupi girls are beaten black and blue by set of goons because they were having beer in a pub that ramsene 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 so you you don't want them any whether they wear a hijab whether they wear a jeans whether they wear a bindiar whether they wear a short whatever you they wear you have bloody objection to it you can go salman khan jaisa bagair koi shirt ja sakte ho koi problem koi fark nahi padta lekin you have a problem with girl being her have on having her own identity i think the courts in the system should take a serious note of it because this is actually a war against women not against girls not against muslim girls it's a war against women war against feminism the question here is that we are living in a country every aspect is decided by men sitting in parliament whether it is sex workers rights under the immoral traffic prevention act decided by all men group or whether it is domestic violence at <laughs> all men group who are these guys what kind of understanding they have regarding women's issue 
I'm sorry, I'm really very angry on that file that the kind of statutes we bring, the kind of laws we talk in terms of, we talk in terms of implementation of the statutes, we talk from absolutely chauvinist kind of a structure, male chauvinism, which is writ large in our legal and is our legislative system. And that's a very serious question. And I have serious argument against it. So long as it's not inclusive, the whole construct is being inclusive. That's what my constitution talks in terms of. Mm. It talks in terms of inclusivity. It talks in terms of diversity. It talks in terms of protecting that inclusivity, protecting the diversity. You understand this? Yes. That's the construct. That's what Article 14 is. Unfortunately, it's being not even referred to. Article 19.1, yes, speaks of that. One's identity. My expression is also an identity. My identity is an expression. I couldn't do I, I, I have been I have been an advocate for transgender for decades now. I've been part of them and I, I strongly see that. For them, what they wear address is their identity. You cannot say that. In fact, first case which I did was in the magistrate court in Bangalore, almost two decades ago, more than two decades ago, was that the judge had told a hijra, she, he called the police constable told the constable, take this hijra out, cut her hair, or put her a male dress and get her back to court. Can you imagine this? The magistrate did that. And the next day, the girl was, that the hijra was dragged to the Kaban Park next door to the magistrate court. They cut her hair, long, lovely hair, put her a pant and she, she was there in the court, shivering in the corner. She did not even come into the court hall when the case was called. Then you know what happened? Then they said, uh, I went out and the girl was standing there. I could not identify her because she was not the one whom I saw in my office. Then she said, I'm, I'm here. I said, why are you here? Why are you not to come to court hall? I'm scared of coming to court hall. Then it was the case that there was a case where five were accused, not one. I said, what about the other four? After my scene, all the others have run away. So I took cudgels on me. I took really against the court and the judge. I told them, next time you come, all of us are going together to court. I said, you come with the finest sari, finest perfume, finest flowers, finest makeup, you name anything. So there you come, sit with me. I'm going to sit in line with you in the uh, bench behind the chairs. I will not sit in the front row of the chair. I will sit in the bench where the uh, other people sit, witnesses and accused before they're being called. I will sit along with you and let's make a scene. So 10.30 we went, we sat there in front of the judge. I said, keep smiling at the judge through the proceedings. I did sit with them. And then said, when you called, you go there, you put your wonderful pose and say, Namaskar. They did it typically. Judge was so embarrassed. I told, he just called me, Mr. Venkatesh, do they really need to dress like that? I said, told the magistrate that look at the court. If there is anyone who is properly dressed with due respect to the court, it is my clients. Understand that? Not others. All of them with the disheveled hair, haggard looking faces. See them. Do any of them look good? You call this as a temple of justice. In a temple, people don't go like that. If there is someone who's come to a temple today, it's my clients. 
you must let it respect that <laughs> i told it to the judge see when i'm talking of identity identity is what we are and that's what we need to be respected you cannot impose your rules regarding my identity that is protected under article 19 1a mm. and see struggle we need to go through and this is under struggle that we need to go through that hijab is a right it's a choice some women say that it's all oppression of islam is it <laughs> if wearing tilak can be considered as oppression of hinduism do you ever say that you don't do that bindi is not considered as oppression of hinduism no it's not if you were to say hijab is oppression of islam you must also be making one bear bindi is oppression uh, of hinduism or bangal is oppression of hinduism you can't do that it's predominantly identity and there is a culture behind that I think that's culture that need to be respected because culture is beyond religion. Culture is beyond religion. Culture is nothing to do with religion. I think this identity, cultural identity, religious identities, whatever you talk in terms of, it's purely personal. What is purely personal is protected under the constitution. Neither the courts nor the state has any very business entering into personal lives. right to privacy is protected and put some judgment do people don't read constitution it's also interesting that the police seems to have just they have become bystanders in a sense uh, the partisan attitude of the state and its agencies is something which is uh, becoming uh, normalized uh, the the state agencies and the state are partisan in that good number of these states which are happening protection as has to be given by the state is being not done if they as, not, as we have seen in the gurgaon namaz case for instance that's right whether it's case of lynching what is the action that state dharma sansad matter in uttarakhand what is the action which is taking serious action which is being taken we are not talking of that we we state it virtually it's becoming uh, one part is that state not taking action is one part second part the stretch which is going on by these accused persons is that they say that the state is acting in complicity see they are making the state is not making the statement the elements who are doing this have the audacity to make a statement everything is in complicity with the state anybody who interferes it need to be acted upon by the state it's a duty cast upon the state it's a duty cast upon the judiciary it's not that see we are a country where the powers with the judiciary vested to such a degree we have redefined the whole construct of judicial activism globally indian judiciary is looked upon because it has devised new tools new implements new thought brought in whether it is the question of public interest litigation as almost any child who grows today knows the case of mc mehta the supreme court is supreme court and high courts of india are the authorities vested under article 32 and article 226 to protect part 3 in totality any one who violates it in whichever the form they violate the court will come to the aid of the person if he has not come to the court court will go to him if he has not come to court 
if the court comes to know, court will go to him. That's something which is the construct. That's the kind of judiciary that we have developed. So therefore, there is a need that these kind of practices need to be done. In good number of occasions, government deliberately fail, even if it were to be a Congress government. Forget the Prasvaya BJP government in Karnataka. Even if it were Congress government, a Dal government, whichever the government, they would have been hesitant in taking action because uh, I'm sorry, suddenly I get into this. <laughs> so they would look into this like the kid gloves with which they handle these lumpen elements is something which is a serious issue. The state and the systems need to take serious action. That's a duty towards constitution. You are not doing any favor. You are discharging your duty. Ensure these girls are in classes. Ensure so much of noise. So much of time lost for an education. Not for just these girls. Other girls have lost education. <clears throat> Other boys have lost education. Parents have lost their peace. You are making a non-issue into an issue rather than addressing issue. It's really a good thing for those in power so long as the diversion happens on anybody thing. Mm. I think the courts need to take serious note of it and protect. And they have a duty to protect. It's not that the courts are not doing any favor to these girls. Not the state doing any favor to these girls. State and the courts are bound to do that. Sabah Hussain, whom you heard at the start of the podcast, is a lecturer in education at the University of Birmingham and the author of Contemporary Muslim Girlhoods in India. She spent several years in Bangalore before moving to the UK. Though her research was focused on Muslim girls in Assam, its findings now bear an uncanny similarity with what's unfolding in Udupi, she says. What kind of similarities do you see uh, between what's happening in Urupi and mm -hmm. with your research in Assam? Was it seen through a similar lens? Very much so. What I saw was a um, narration of cultural difference, right? Muslim girls, whether they were hijabi or not, were often seen with this lens of difference. So Muslim girls were almost the embodiment of cultural difference or the other who's inferior inevitably. You know, it's not other who's equal or it's not different but equal. It's inferior other. So Muslim girls in Assam were quite frequently and in Assam in particular, uh, there is another nuance of language. Bengali speaking Muslim girls in particular were seen as this embodiment of the other who's disempowered, who's not interested in education. And there was these ideas about, well, there's no culture of education in their family. So why would they? The girls are going to get married at 13. So why should we bother with their education and spend state's resources, which we could spend on our girls? You know, there was this very clear divide in thinking about them. As a researcher spent about eight, nine months in the schools, um, there was a mix. Like everywhere in India, you would see Muslim girls who wear a headscarf. You would see 
Muslim girls who don't. You would also see Hindu girls who wear, a, you know, a dupatta and cover themselves for various reasons on various occasions. So it's, uh, and in my work, I call this contextual veiling. That quite often, and a lot of girls when they meet their elders or you know go to a religious place, they cover their head, right? It's something we're all familiar with. And when I'd interview teachers and people in the school, quite often one of the things they would say about difference was, "Oh yeah, Muslim girls are more religious." There was this sense that somehow Muslim families and Muslim girls are more religious and more publicly religious, which was seen as problematic. Right? And there I was sitting in classrooms with, uh, not classrooms, sorry, staff rooms with figures of Hindu gods and goddesses. Uh, the teachers I was in, uh, interviewing inevitably themselves, you know, wearing various religious symbols. So my reading of that sort of, you know, constant highlighting of Muslim women's or Muslim girls' practices as different was that it was disturbing this sort of Hindu normality because it was all around you. It was so normal that anything that was different was seen as disruptive, right? So the classrooms always had figures constantly in pre in the assemblies, etc. We spoke about Bharat Mata, so the evocation of the Hindu goddess and so on. So there were lots of references to Hinduism consistently. If you spend a day in a government school in India, anything that seems like it was anything that wasn't even challenging it, but was seen as different, would be seen as it's disrupting the normal. Women wearing hijab is not such a new thing in India. Uh, do you see this as a Muslim issue or do you see this as a gender issue? I would label it as an issue of majoritarianism, right? How minorities inhabit majoritarian context. And in those contexts, gender does play an important role, right? Muslim women do occupy uh, a sort of space in this sort of majoritarian imagination, if I can use that you know, word. Um, so Muslim women are seen at the same time as this backward, disempowered subject who needs to be saved by the majoritarian regime through legal measures, through cultural measures, and through, you know, uh, preventing them from wearing headscarves or whatever that is perceived as, you know, disempowering. So Muslim women are seen as these subjects who don't have their own agency and they're obviously victims of Muslim patriarchy, let's say. Uh, so the major in the majoritarian imagination, uh, that is A, the reason why Hindu supremacy exists, because we have these inferior communities that treat their women in these ways. And at the same time, how do you save these women? So it gives the, you know, it gives them a purpose that we have to save these women through various methods. And therefore, I think it is a gender issue within a sort of majoritarian political imagination where minority women are often viewed as destitute and desperate and they need then saving from the men in their community. The point that you were making about majoritarian view of women from other religions is being weaker. But actually, are you seeing that Muslim, young Muslim women are showing greater agency, uh, even in choices of, of their clothing? 
even when Muslim women have been making choices, these are almost often seen as non-choices. You know what I mean? So if Muslim women were, let's say, choosing, making particular territorial choices, it is often seen as, oh, yeah, she was forced to do it. Or uh, even in my research, I encountered this really, and this is an interesting anecdote. Um, So quite often in schools with lower income groups, you would have, um, you know, for a combination of economic reasons, et cetera, girls not doing well, uh, you know, in their academic work, like not performing well. So the explanation to them that to of that used to be, you know, they don't have the cultural education and their first generation learners, blah, blah, blah. But when I did the same study and asked the same set of questions in a middle class school where, in fact, there were several Muslim girls that were doing quite well academically, it was the same question, but just the situation was opposite. And the explanation was, well, what can they do? Their families discipline them so much. They can't do extracurricular work. They can't do anything else, but they're forced to therefore study, study, and therefore they're good. So there is that sense that they can't put a foot right, basically. (laughs) Right. So when there is academic problems with academic performance, there is a it's a cultural explanation. When there isn't a pro- uh, problem with academic performance, it's also a cultural explanation where in they are still oppressed subjects who are being forced to study and do well. Right. Uh, so I think it's uh, as you as you said, it's been you know this debate has existed about Muslim women and you know so on. But I think. Uh, Within what is important, I think, for us is to recognize the ways in which Muslim women have been speaking and are speaking today continuously. And which is where I think this whole, you know, the controversy, not the controversy, the the, the the episode, the bully buy and the sully deals and all of that is really worrying. Because I think in my own experience in the last few years with social media and with all of that, we've seen Muslim women's, we're able to see Muslim women, vocal and visible Muslim women in the ways we haven't seen perhaps in the past. And also the the CAA and RC protests, which was primarily led by Muslim women. So this whole thing of, of, of them being weak or unempowered gets shattered. And that's why it gets so much pushback, isn't it? The people, the women that participated in these protests and that were vocal and visible, or any other Muslim public figures, journalists, etc., have experienced so much hate because they shatter that very important myth that Muslim women are disempowered and they need saving. And when Muslim women remain disempowered, that explanation that Muslims are inferior works. But the moment you have these local visible Muslim women, and they're not talking about religion, they're often talking about civic rights and human rights. They're talking in a language of, you know, a very civic language. That is what is so dangerous. And I think that's that's why I view Muslim women that are visible and vocal as dangerous women, because they're dangerous because they disrupt a particular type of imagination of India. And I think that's where the backlash comes so often. After the CAA protests, I was in Delhi when the riots happened, and I remember speaking to this man, and he said, you know, our women are also, they wear jeans, and they also know how to fight back. So it's almost like, like, and you're seeing that the, now there are girls who are wearing saffron shawls and coming out sort of, so it's almost like pitting Hindu women against 
Muslim women. Mm. Oh, absolutely. And it's all, almost pitting Hindu modernity against Muslim traditionalism or conservatism, whatever you call. So this very idea that our girls wear jeans and our girls are, you know, where Muslim girls don't, they wear a hijab, which is a sign of their disempowerment, right? So it's almost saying that you can be Hindu and visibly Hindu and modern, whereas if you are Muslim and visibly so, you've lost all claims to modernity. You can't be a modern thinking, rational, decision-making, you know, agential subject that's denied to you completely if you look Muslim. Whereas if you're Hindu, it's fine. You can have access to that modernity and you can be that modern citizen subject. You've spent time in Karnataka, you've spent time in Bangalore, and you also mentioned that India is a plural country, pluralistic country, which of course it is. But are you surprised by the lack of support from fellow students for these girls? At a human level, yes. But as a researcher, no, not at all. <laughs> I could see the things they were saying. They were saying to exams in two months, what are you doing with our future? And why have you changed the rules? So these girls have been coming to that college, you know, since forever. And suddenly there is this, you know, change of rules or change of perception or whatever it is. Um, uh, so... And you're seeing actual school officials who, you know, you, who are closing the gate on them and sort of not letting them come in and so on. It's, it's and as a teacher as well, it's heartbreaking. How could you, um, you know, um, it's really heartbreaking to see that a teacher is able to do. And we haven't heard any supportive statements from any teachers or any you know, students' bodies, etc. cetera. Uh, but as a researcher, as I said, the, the sort of the Islamophobia is so well embedded in some ways that it's not even recognized as, you know, Islamophobia because, you know, it's almost like, um, for instance, this, this lens of cultural difference that we might be friends and we might be in the same class, but, you know, at the end of the day, you know, they're different kind of a thing. That is, or, you know, I've seen things like, uh, Casual Islamophobia. That's why it is not dangerous. It on a day-to-day -day basis, even Muslim girls would, you know, they in my research at least responded to it with a lot of humor and wit and they were used to it, kind of. So things like, you know, what is in your lunchbox? Just eat away from me. Their best friend will say things like that. What have you bought in your lunchbox? I don't want to eat with you. We're best friends, we sit together and we do our work together, but I don't want to eat with you, for instance. Or if you go and go to do homework in your friend's house. Um they wouldn't eat or drink in your house or you go to their house, you're not allowed to touch anything. And there's one designated glass you're going to drink. So all of these things, there is, you know, all of those things are so embedded, even within friendships. But I think a really deep reflection is required on the terms of friendship. Like on what terms? Is it just That's my not. terms? You know, is it on my terms that this friendship is existing? And I think, I think that deep reflection is required. And quite often, a lot, of a lot of people get through their life without reflecting on those uh, unequal and asymmetric terms in which they have the privilege of existing, which others don't, you know. Uh, so in that sense, it doesn't surprise me because a lot of people haven't asked themselves those questions. Why is it happening to this person? Yesterday, we were in the class together doing, I don't know, algebra. And today, this person's not allowed to come into the classroom because of 
you know, what they wear. You know, this should bother them. Today's episode is produced by Jairad Singh, Arun George and Sunay Marathe. Research by Kiefer Lobo. For a daily spotlight on people, ideas and stories that matter, subscribe to us. We are available on TUI+, Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts and all other platforms of your choice. For any news tips, reach us at tuipodcasts at timesinternet.in.